Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, uh, the 25th of August, 2023. Leading story today in the Wall Street Journal above murders in Russia, fires, the Trump nonsense, are about mortgage rates. They've hit 7.23%, the highest since 2001. It's astonishing. Um, and according to one... Uh, real estate expert, the chief economist, actually, Freddie Mac. Um, the market has just ground to a halt. It'll be interesting to see what the longer-term consequences of this and um, some of the impact of this on the high-end market has been particularly dramatic. One person who knows all about the high-end market is the Wall Street Journal's uh, expert on real estate, expensive real estate, residential real estate, Catherine Clark. She's the author of a, a new book. It just came out in June, Billionaires Row, Tycoons, High Rollers, and the Epic Race to Build the World's Most Exclusive Skyscrapers. It's already been long-listed for the Financial Times uh, Business Book of the Year. And Catherine is joining us from Lower Manhattan, not Upper Manhattan, not from one of those obscene uh, towers. Catherine, uh, congratulations on the book. Before we get to Billionaire's Row, what's your sense of, uh, you didn't write this lead story in the journal, even if you are one of the uh, real estate writers on this. What's your sense of how this is actually going to impact the broader economy? You know, it's really interesting because it's been very uneven across the country. We've written a lot about how the housing market's been performing differently on the East Coast than the West Coast. Um, and it's also affected the high-end market very differently, which is the area that I cover. Um, so, you know, in areas where we've seen a, a massive drop, maybe 25, 30% in sales, we're still not seeing prices come down to reflect that. Prices have actually gone up in a bunch of these very high-end um, enclaves, like in Palm Beach and New York. And um, only in San Francisco did we really see them come down because they saw a huge drop in sales. So it's very uneven and hard to predict at the moment, I would say. Yeah, well, talking from San Francisco, I'm proud of that in San Francisco. Any price reductions is a good thing. Uh, you wrote a piece, though, about how there was a significant cut in one of these apartments overlooking Central Park. It was on the market for $47 billion and actually only went for 34 I would guess, though, and uh, I'm not an expert by any means on this, uh, Catherine, so correct me if I'm wrong, that the elasticity at this end of the market would be less than at the lower end. I mean, if you can afford $47 billion, uh, if you can afford thirty-four billion, why not forty-seven billion? Are these well, horribly million, wealthy? Not, <laughs> not to scare people, we should say million, not billion. <laughs> right. I apologize, but but these very very rich people are they put off by price? I mean, does it make any difference to a billionaire whether they're spending thirty-five or forty-five million dollars for an apartment? My impression is that it really does. I think to some extent, these people are very wealthy for a reason. And a part of that is because they're very careful with their money. 
And even if you have all the money in the world, you still like the idea that you're getting a deal. Um, so we see that a lot. Um, and in that building in particular that I, I wrote about this week, we've seen discounts, you know, anywhere from 10% to even 40% on some units. Um, and some of the buyers have been pretty savvy people. Like we saw uh, Robert Herjavec, the, the guy, one of the sharks from Shark Tank, just bought one of the units and he got it at a very significant discount from what the original owners had bought it for in 2011. One of the nice things about your book, Catherine, I think this is probably certainly one reason why it's been long listed for the FT book of the year, business book of the year, is it's not porn for the wealthy or not porn about the wealthy. It's not just the cult of obscene wealth. What, why did you choose to write this book on Billionaire's Row? Um, is, it, um, is it significant in your view in sociological, cultural and bubble else political terms? I think for me, the whole idea of Billionaire's Row had entered the public consciousness in such a big way um, in the in the aspect of house porn more than anything else. You know, my sister-in-law in Northern Ireland was sending me videos of, you know, these YouTubers touring these hundred million dollar apartments and things. And I just thought, you know, I've been I've been writing. About you're from Northern Ireland originally. So yes, quite um, a different real estate market, I'm guessing, from billionaires row. Exactly, yeah. But it, it had become this subject of international intrigue. I mean, that was proof of it to me. Uh, and I'd been reporting on how these buildings had been constructed for, you know, a decade. And no one really seemed to know the real story behind it. You know, the, the rough and tumble, you know, gritty, sometimes seedy stories of how these buildings end up on the skyline. And the sort of, you know, macroeconomic trends that um, buoyed them into reality. And so I just thought that was a story that was worth telling. I mean, the wealth, the Gilded Age wealth of these places for me is shocking. Tom, Tom Payne must be, to say the least, turning in his grave. Um, tell me the background to it. Um, I, I'm guessing that Trump himself must be somehow involved in this since he's the the original billionaire, bad taste billionaire real estate developer in New York. Trump plays a very, very minor role in the book in that a couple of projects that he did sort of preceded this idea of billionaires row. So there were a few buildings that went up in the 80s, for instance, Aristotle Onassis built one, Trump built Trump Tower. He also built Trump International Hotel and Tower on Central Park South. And to some extent, you could probably make the argument that those buildings paved the way for these new super talls. They were kind of the first buildings in New York that were not designed to appeal to you know, the sort of upper crust social set of Manhattan. They were designed explicitly to appeal to, you know, Chinese buyers and Middle Eastern buyers and Russian buyers. Um, and they yeah, were... they're very slim. Uh, for people watching this, we have a, an image from Central Park with some low-lying trees and these huge towers. Um, so are they built specifically for internet, for the international and wealthy, Asian, Russian, Middle Eastern? 
I think if you asked the developers of these buildings, they would say no, because that's probably bad business. But I do think their construction was predicated on this notion that there was this sort of far and wide demand for luxury housing from China, especially uh, because at the time that these buildings were conceived, you know, the Chinese government was doing everything that it could to sort of deflate, <clears throat> pardon me, deflate the housing bubble in China and, you know, put, uh, put the kibosh on, on property speculators. And so a lot of wealthy Chinese investors were looking for a place to put their money. And with the exchange rate between the yen and the dollar, New York seemed like a very attractive place to be. Um, and so, you know, in the early days of this, you know, development bonanza, the Chinese buyer was really the, you know, the source of um, the source of buyers. But as as we move along in the years, that kind of goes away. How ugly was this epic? You call it an epic race. I guess it's a euphemism, a battle, perhaps more appropriately to build these amongst these developers. How ugly and dirty did it all get? I think it depends on, uh, you know, which building you're looking at, you know. Well, what's you, the worst story? I want, I, want, I want some real gutter stories from you, Catherine. Uh, well, there was one building, uh, 111 West 57th Street, which is actually the skinniest building on the corridor. It's on an incredibly tight footprint. Um, but, you know, long story short, the, the two partners that worked on that project together didn't get along very well. They had an investor that sued them for, you know, trying to squeeze him out of the project. Allegedly, you know, seven or eight years of litigation later, the project is still in the court system. You know, there was a battle with the construction unions over the over the construction of it. And so it all just turned into a, a giant mess, basically. When I think about this, we've done a number of shows, Catherine, on New York, one with Michael Kimmelman, the architecture correspondent of the New York Times, talking about how New York is best seen walking, other shows about uh, streets and, and, and the community of New York. This is the reverse of the traditional notion of New York. It's, it's New York from the air, isn't it? Everything is views. Everything is above the rest of the world, which symbolically reflects this profound inequality. Yeah, and in some ways, I mean, all of these developers were incentivized to build as tall as possible to maximize the views of Central Park, they would say. I mean, not all of them are actually on Central Park. And so you have to get high enough that you can see over the buildings that front Central Park. But it's kind of ironic because, you know, all these people want to be in New York. But at the same time, the higher you get, the more removed you get from the city in some sense. I mean, if you're at the top of one of these super talls, you know, the tallest one is 1,550 feet, you feel, you know, almost entirely detached from the city like you're on a... You know, well, not almost. You are detached. You might as well be in an airplane or a helicopter. Right, exactly. Um, we are talking with uh, Catherine Clark, a writer, for a journalist for the Wall Street Journal. Her new book, Billionaire's Road, Tycoons, High Rollers, and the Epic Race to Build... The world's most exclusive skyscrapers has just been longlisted for the Financial Times uh, Business Book of the Year. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, Catherine. And, and after the break, um, I want to talk more about the 
cultural and political ramifications of this for New York and for America. Um, but uh, I, I want to also thank our sponsor, uh, not billionaires, but Liberties, a quarterly journal of cultural and politics, wonderful new quarterly that's published out of Washington, D.C. Going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with, uh, Kath, uh, with uh, Catherine Clark, the author of Billionaire's Row. So don't go anywhere, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not a of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. So you can find it at more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with um, Catherine Clark, the author of Billionaire's Row, a new book, which has just been long listed for the New York Times, uh, for the uh, Financial Times, not the New York Times, Financial Times Book of the Year. Uh, excellent new book. Catherine, um, does this all really matter? I, I understand that it's an interesting book and an, an intriguing story, but I go to New York all the time and maybe I walk around with my eyes shut or maybe I walk around with my eyes on the pavement, but I hadn't even noticed these tall buildings uh, is it does it really matter is it just kind of eye candy does it make any difference to the rest of the city i think it does i think there are a few ways to look at it um and i think it's really been brought into focus over the last couple of years because of covid um you know during the pandemic there was all of this discussion about you know, these super wealthy people who were moving from New York to other states. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a huge deal, but it, you know, had a cumulative effect that was massive in the form of, you know, many billions of dollars in tax revenue for the city. I think, you know, Mayor Bloomberg, when, when he was mayor, once said, you know, the more billionaires that we can get, the better, because it's, you know, it's keeping our tax rolls alive. Um, and so there's just this, I think it's a worthy debate to have as to, you know, whether these are good for the city or bad for the city. Um, and, you know, the developers would obviously argue that they're creating a lot of jobs and putting a lot of money into the economy and that these people who live in these buildings or don't live in these buildings for, for a lot of, um, in a lot of instances, aren't really drawing upon city services. Like, they're not riding the bus. They're not sending their kids to public is school. Is that an argument for or against this? It's an argument for. Um, but I also think there are plenty of arguments against. I mean, Well, that could be turned against because these people aren't really living in the city. They're, they're importing an aristocratic economy into New York, which has always been supposedly the symbol of American democracy and mobility. I mean, the people who they bring in are servants, drivers, nannies. Some of them probably bring in their slaves from, from, from their own countries. So it, it seems very creepy to me. Right. And there's a whole other side of it as far as the tax breaks that these developers got. I mean, at least one of these buildings got a pretty significant tax break in, in, um, in exchange for developing 
some public housing, uh, which they don't have to develop on site, they can develop it elsewhere. I think the developer built it in the Bronx. Um, but then there was a whole, you know, investigation by the by the city uh, into whether or not that was a good deal that the city had made in return for those few apartments. And they, they decided that it wasn't in the end. Um, so I think there's also a debate to be had about you know, what those developers are giving back to the city in exchange for the right to build these kinds of towers. Who are these developers? I mean, you mentioned Trump plays a minor role. Are they rather like him in their lack of civic responsibility or concern for the city? You know, that was really my driving force behind writing this book, is that I... I'm sort of blown away by the cast of characters behind this um, this trend. Um, and they really run the gamut. I mean, one of the primary characters in the book is sort of this legendary New York City developer named Harry Macklow, who, you know, had his run-ins with Trump back in the day. Um, he was the one who developed the Apple Cube in front of the GM building um, yeah. at the southeast corner of Central Park. Um, and so it's a nice, nice building. It was very successful. And then so, you know, in at the start of the book, we find him in 2008. And he's kind of lost his shirt because of the last financial crisis. He's, you know, bought seven office buildings at the top of the market. And uh, he has this one one site left that's sort of his last hope. And he's scouring the globe to find the money to build it. Um, and he's just this ex incredibly eccentric character i mean he's he kind of lives like the people he builds for you know he'll he'll be wearing his prada loafers and his pashmina and cruising off the coast of croatia um enormous art collector you know midway through the book we find him in the middle of one of the most expensive divorces in american history um just a, just a very fascinating guy Maybe it's my kind of anti-snobbery snobbery, but look, I haven't been in any of these. I've been in some nice homes in New York, but looking at the photos, some some attached to your your pieces, these places don't look particularly nice. They certainly don't look as if they're worth, I mean, they got good views given, but you can find good views in hotels. They look like fancy hotel rooms. Are, are they... Do some of these photos not not do justice, or or, or you presumably spent a lot of time in some of these places? Um, are they horribly overvalued, or are these people just lacking any kind of taste? Do they have international taste, and they just go from airport to airport and city to city, and they have no imagination, and they're just accepting what everyone else looks like, and trying to build places that come out of television studios? I mean, I've, I've subscribed to different strokes for different folks, but I think for a lot of these buyers, you know, these these apartments are more than just, you know, architecture or, you know, real estate the way you or I would think about it. They're, you know, safety deposit boxes. They're, you know, a place to just stash your cash. Um, and, you know, a lot of these folks rarely visit. I mean, so what do they the, do with them? Just keep them empty? They do, yeah. The the penthouse apartment at 432 Park, which is Harry Macklow's building on the corridor, uh, the owner has never set foot in that apartment. It's on the market for, I think, 130 something million dollars. And who, who is the owner? He's a Saudi retail magnate. Um, and he, I guess he owns the... Should um, there be stricter laws on this, do you think, in the US? Should people who buy 
homes be at least required to rent them out if not live in them? I think, I mean, I, I reserve my opinion, but I think that um, it really depends on what your priorities are because some of these countries that have put restrictions on you know, the foreign buyer set specifically, like Canada, for instance, did that a few years ago, they really saw their property market crash. So it's a delicate tightrope walk um, as far as um, limiting uh, foreign buyer scope. You report not just on New York, you've, you've, you've reported on these enormously expensive homes in Miami, ones that Jeff Bezos buys, and Martha's Vineyard, all over the place. How is this changing America? I mean, I think it's just showing, casting a light on how the rich are getting so much richer. I mean, during COVID, the the deal flow that we saw at the very high end of the market was overwhelming. I mean, the transfer of wealth that happened during those couple of years was just unprecedented. And we saw the wealthy sort of throwing around hundreds of millions of dollars in Palm Beach and Malibu and, you know, across the country. So I think it's just brought into stark focus just how, you know, crazy that differential has gotten. It's not just anonymous Saudi princes buying these places, these gaudy palaces, to be polite to them. There are a lot of very, very wealthy Americans also look as if, uh, they're rather gaudy themselves. Michael Dell, Bill Ackman, a financial speculator, Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez, another rather unphotographic couple, uh, Sting and, and Ken Griffin. In other ages, um, uh, Catherine, these people would be strung up by the crowd. They would be they would be appropriate, their places would be appropriated and they would be roasted by the crowd. Why are Americans so accepting of this gaudy, destructive wealth and these, these tasteless elites that destroy their cities? Maybe I'm being a bit unfair here. <laughs> well, being from the UK myself, it has taken me a long time to get used to you know, the sort of glorification of wealth that exists in America, it's just incredibly different. I mean, I, my feeling is that in the UK, you know, you, you get a little bit too big for your boots and you're skewered. Whereas yeah. here you are. It's very the guillotine. Much... Exactly. Symbolically, at least, maybe not literally. In France, I think they still have the guillotine. Whereas here, people see it for in large part as the American dream. I mean, especially if you came from nothing, like if you were an Alex Rodriguez or a, you know, Bill Ackman or, you know, someone who built a huge business off your own back, there is a respect for that, I think, that doesn't exist in Europe the way it does here. And meanwhile, in New York, at least, the rest of the city in some ways festers. Um, the, the metro is about 100 years out of date. Uh, the air is bad. So much of this money could be reinvested more with, with more civic responsibility, couldn't it, Catherine? I think that's a completely fair point. And I think, I mean, talking earlier about um, the tax breaks that these developers got to, to build these towers, I think there's definitely an argument to be made that those funds could be, you know, repurposed for some kind of municipal benefit. Um, and I mean, certainly that could 
that could happen. There's sort of a moment in the book in 2019 where um, New York politics just, you know, starts to go more liberal. And so I think, you know, with this new generation of of politicians, you know, with, we saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come in and, you know, Amazon got nixed and, you know, the whole sort of tide of New York politics changed to some extent. And so I do think we might we might see more of that. And I wonder whether it would come from the right or the left. Uh, the Republicans just had a big debate last night. Uh, the, 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 the cult of wealth is, is being tarnished both on, certainly, obviously, on the left, but also on the right. Conservatives aren't crazy about some of this extreme wealth either, are they? I think that's probably true. But at the end of the day, I mean, you've got a billionaire who's the front runner for the Republican nomination. So, to, you know, to what extent could that really be true? And finally, uh, Catherine, how is this going to end? I mean, there won't be an earthquake, for better or worse, in New York. It doesn't seem to have earthquakes in San Francisco. This would end in a big earthquake and it will be crumbling down to the ground. Will these big towers eventually lose their luster? It doesn't seem as if they have much now. Will they increasingly become places that are overpriced and no one really wants to live in? I think it depends on which building you're talking about. But, you know, my my book covers the cycle from around 2010 to today. And the buildings that were built at the early stage of that cycle in 2011, 2012 already have lost their luster. Things just move so quickly in this market. There's always something newer and fancier and taller and skinnier. And, um, you know, the, the people who bought into those earlier buildings are now already seeing losses. But it's very case by case because there's another building on that same street to the to the property I was writing about this week where, you know, the resale numbers are astronomical. So um, you really have to look at it building by building. There's not really one story to tell. I think that's true. I have to say, um, for all my criticism, if there is an anonymous Saudi prince out there watching or Ken Griffin or Bill Ackman or Michael Dell, and they want to get rid of their place for nothing, I'll happily take one of their units. So if any of you are watching, I'm there. And I bet, Catherine, you'd take one too, wouldn't you? I think that might be a conflict of interest with my job, but maybe I'd just give up my job. I think you would give up your job. (laughs) 